thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Healthy Shift Worker with your host, Audra Starkey. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Shift Worker podcast. My name is Audra Starkey and I'm here to help you to manage some of the toughest challenges we face whilst working 24-7. Today we're going to be talking all things jet lag and, and how to enhance our health and well-being whilst crossing multiple time zones, which I think as shift workers we kind of often feel like that even though we haven't even left the ground. Um, but to talk about this topic, I've brought in Dr. Sun Bin from the University of Sydney, who is an epidemiologist and public health researcher who has a particular interest in sleep and circadian rhythms and how these biological rhythms are reflected in behaviour, health and disease. Dr Bin's area of expertise is looking at habitual sleep as a lifestyle risk risk factor and the important uh, sorry and the impact of disordered sleep on public health in Australia. She's been awarded international grants for both research and teaching and is currently working on the Charles Perkins Centre Qantas Partnership Project Health and Wellbeing in the Air, which is otherwise known as Project Sunrise. So as an ex airline employee, I am really interested in and chatting to uh, Sun this morning and hearing more about this uh, study. So to talk more about jet lag and Project Sunrise Rise, I'd like to give a warm a welcome to Dr. Sun Bin. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Great to be with you, Audra. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so very much uh, for joining me, Sun. And, and I know that we, we did speak, talk about this briefly before we went to air, but I first saw you speak uh, just a couple of months ago at the Australasian Chronobiology Society uh, conference down in Sydney. And and um, when you got up and started talking about, you know, the Qantas Project Sunrise, I went, oh, my goodness, I so need to talk to this lady. <laughs> um, yeah, it's well, fascinating. Can I just um, start by saying how fantastic it is that you have this podcast and are, like, educating shift workers around the world with it? Because as a public health researcher, I'm like, education is at the heart of public health, like bringing mm. the community along with us in everything that we do. Mm. Yeah. So it's so encouraging to see like you and others trying to get that knowledge out there. Oh, thank you. Yes, education is definitely um, a big part of kind of what I do exactly for your reason and from a public health perspective. And I think you of all people would know the the impact of sleep loss on our health and, and well-being, that it is a public, um, you know, epidemic of mm. description, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and there's just, you know, in general, so little known about the importance of sleep and circadian rhythms. Mm. Like, I think some of my colleagues were mentioning that um, in our national curriculum in Australia, this is for primary and high school kids, there's a lot about healthy eating and exercise, but nothing at all about healthy sleep. And so when we think about sort of a healthy day and thinking about healthy eating, healthy exercise, you know, sufficient exercise and enough sleep, we just don't know anything about how to go about getting the sleep part of it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that's why I was also really excited to see that the Parliamentary World First Inquiry about sleep health awareness. I was excited about it as a shift worker kind of perspective, but you must have even been more excited about it from a sleep researcher perspective. Yeah, and definitely. And from a public health perspective to get that acknowledgement from you know politicians and policymakers and governments that you know sleep is important. Um, that's incredible recognition and just having just that recognition alone with, you know, the media um, and public attention to it. I think that really raises everyone's awareness that, hey, you know, this is something we should all pay attention to. 
yeah not brush it off um to mm. the side which i think yeah a lot of us do yeah yeah well i guess first things first son i'm really quite interested to sort of hear a little bit about your background of um you know how you you know got I suppose got started into sort of doing what you what you're doing obviously now is a lot more sleep and circadian research but i'd love to hear the journey <laughs> that sort of got you along yeah. the way yeah definitely i think um I don't know if you found this as well, but everyone in sort of sleep and circadian research um, has, you know, comes from really diverse backgrounds um, and everyone's so interesting because of that. So um, I actually have a background in psychology and public health. Um, and when I first got to uni, I, I started off um, wanting to do something totally different, which was physics. Um, <laughs> and that's because I loved the idea of like, having these sort of invisible but universal sort of rules and laws that were just out there waiting for us to be discovered. You know, so like, you know, gravity, everyone has to adhere to gravity, but you can't see it at all. Um, and I actually did psychology as a bit of a sideline at first, um, but then realised how much it was all about universals and thinking and behaviour. So what people have in common, um, our shared beliefs and attitudes and how these things affect our behaviour. So at the end of the day, people... Um, are all people and if we find ourselves in sort of similar circumstances we're going to behave in similar ways so because I was so interested in what people have in common I thought well what's the best way I can use this knowledge to try and help people so instead of becoming a psychologist or another health um, professional who treats people only when they get sick what about changing some of those invisible elements of the world and how do we do that to benefit everyone and actually prevent health problems in the first place um and that's how i became interested in public health oh right mm -hmm. okay yep yeah um, so i guess to give you um an example of that you know thinking about the structural factors that might influence health um things in our environment so you know we're really lucky in australia for instance to have really good regulations around noise and what time things like construction are allowed to be carried out um, and that means, at least for us day workers, um, our sleep time is protected from noise and we have pretty good sleep because of that. And, you know, those noise regulations are sort of part of our invisible environment that really govern um, our health and um, what happens in daily life. Mm, and the curfew, obviously, at Sydney Airport, it obviously yes, applies to you yes, being in that's Sydney as well. enormous one in <laughs> Sydney. Um, so, yes, hopefully uh, the new airport will be uh, subject to the same curfews. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yes, oh, eventually I got around to uh, doing a PhD in um, sleep and around the epidemiology of sleep. Um, and uh, as you know, epidemiology is sort of part of uh, a branch of public health and medicine, and it involves using lots of data and statistics to try and figure out what the causes of health problems are at a societal level. And if we can measure these problems, so for instance, knowing how many people actually do shift work, how many people are actually deprived, um, sorry, sleep deprived, and who these people actually are, then we can try and think about, you know, how do we solve these problems at a community level? Mm. And allocating, you know, limited resources to these problems. So thinking about, well, is this problem of sleep deprivation quite easy to solve? Is there another uh, more important problem to solve um, how do we allocate resources to it and you know what are the things that we can actually do today as opposed to some 
longer term investments that we need to invest time and money in. And it's actually quite similar to what we do ourselves every day, but just at a bigger level. So what's it mo- most important for us to do in terms of our health today? So maybe, you know, get enough sleep and, you know, eat something so we don't starve. But then what's less important, but, you know, easy to achieve? And what should we actually invest our time in doing for longer term health, as opposed to, you know, what's fun and easy to do? So for instance, doing physical activity, um, which we might not enjoy doing. I know mean, some of us enjoy <laughs> doing physical activity, um, but you know, which over the short term you don't really see any um, uh, advantages, but over the long term we see lots of advantages with that. So yes, um, that's how I got into public health and looking at sleep. Um, and so the research-wise, I find myself sort of split between multiple areas, and that's because I sort of bring this public health and epidemiology perspective to a variety of different topics. So I'm interested in sleep and circadian health in the population. I'm interested um, very much in sleep in women, particularly around pregnancy, um, and that's because I did um, some postdoctoral work um, in that population. And now I'm doing the work uh, with the uh, Charles Perkins Centre and Qantas Partnership on jet lag. Um, and I guess to bring it back full circle, you know, sleep is something we all do and probably take for granted unless something goes wrong. And the same with circadian rhythms, unless we're shift workers. Um, and these are really the invisible parts of our shared biology that we don't think about. Um, and in the 24-hour society, we do need to be aware of how important these systems are. That's mm, why I just, I'm so just love to hear that that, um, you know, like yourself, you do exist, that there is all this research kind of going on, uh, you know, behind the scenes and, and I know with mm. a lot of the papers and everything that you that you uh, write and publish and so forth and I guess for me as that middleman, I'm just trying to translate all that research that you're doing and, and getting it to the people um, that need to hear it uh, the most. So, But I guess that kind of, yeah, leads into um, all about your, your most recent work that you are doing with Qantas could you because I know that we've got listeners all all around the world, so Qantas might not be as a familiar term to you know some of um, some of our other <laughs> listeners. Yeah, so I mean, would you mind just sort of ex- explaining exactly you know what is Project Sunrise? Yeah, sure. Um, so Project Sunrise is actually the name of uh, one of Qantas's projects. So what Qantas um, want to do as an airline is to fly direct between the east coast of Australia. So that's between Melbourne, Sydney and Melbourne to, sorry, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane to the east coast of the USA. So basically New York um, and also direct from the east coast of Australia to the UK. Um, and the aim of Project Sunrise is really to see whether those direct flights, which are going to be about 20 hours long, are feasible and can be done. Um, so what Qantas are doing um, are testing these uh, long-haul flights between Sydney and New York and Sydney and London, first of all, um, basically to see whether the pilots can work safely, um, mm. how to manage their crew and staffing, and whether the passengers can cope with a 20-hour flight. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that I suppose yeah, one of the biggest or main aim of the study would be to kind of reduce that feeling of jet lag um, from – yeah, for both crew and, and passenger perspective. So they would have had, uh, I'm assuming, additional uh, crew in the, in the, um, on board than what they would normally do? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's part of their sort of logistical process. I guess from um, our research perspective, 
Project Sunrise is actually only um, part of a bigger partnership that we call Health and Wellbeing in the Air, and that's a partnership between Qantas and the University of Sydney Charles Perkins Centre. Um, so what the Charles Perkins Centre is trying to do is to solve health problems in a more sort of integrated and holistic way. And what we're trying to do with Qantas is to, you know, as similar to what you do, is to translate some of the research so that we can actually generate a solution for, mm. for instance, um, reducing jet lag for passengers across all Qantas flights and not just those involved um, that are part of Project Sunrise and the test flights that Qantas have been um, having as part of Project Sunrise. Mm. Um, so we actually have a huge team of people involved in um, this partnership and they have expertise in nutrition, in sleep, in exercise, in chronobiology or circadian rhythms, in engineering, in psychology, etc. Um, and as you mentioned, the aim of this partnership is really trying to improve passengers' well-being during the flights, um, so making sure they can cope with being on the plane and stuck in that plane cabin for 20 hours, and also to smooth the transition to what happens after the flight and um, reduce the inevitable jet lag. And, you know, for Australians, everywhere we go, it's a long-haul flight, yeah. and that comes with a huge time difference <laughs> so and massive yeah. jet lag. Yeah, we're kind of stuck already, aren't we? We're behind the eight ball before we even get on board. <laughs> yeah, and, well, that's why this is particularly important for Qantas and for, um, you know, Australian research, right? Mm. Everywhere else, they're a little bit closer to the rest of the world and where they want to go. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. It, yeah, it's 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 awesome. And I remember, um, I know we're going to get into a little bit more of the specifics of what you're actually monitoring and so forth shortly, but I, I remember um, son, just talking to a lady just recently who um, just came back from Asia, actually, from yep. and she was flying um, on the midnight flight, so leaving around midnight, and it was, you know, so just a seven, eight-hour, way shorter flight in comparison to, to what Qantas are doing at the moment. And so it was a lot shorter flight, but they got on board, and within, she said, the first sort of hour, hour, and a half they actually served a really big dinner mm. and she just thought oh I mean she sort of been working with me a fair bit already because I talk about food timing and chrononutrition and so forth but yep. she said Audra it just it just was so not right because all we wanted to do instinctively it will sleep but they yep. were the crew were actually sort of serving us these big heavy meals you know being exposed to the bright light and so forth and, and so I just think um you know kudos to Qantas that are actually looking at at this you know and looking at as different strategies as opposed to just you know as many airlines I'm sure would do they have to sort of schedule when are we going to feed people and so forth but they are really going into the science behind it to kind of really optimize when is a good time to be eating mm. when and is that right time to be getting exposed to light? Yeah, and, and and that's exactly what we're trying to do, just translate what we already know. And we already know a lot about, mm. you know, the importance of timing for our circadian rhythms. So we have a um, chronophysicist, um, so she's a physicist, oh. Dr. Svetlana Posnova, wow. who actually uses mathematical models of the circadian system and how it responds to light to try and figure out what the lighting schedule should be, depending on what flight you're on, the timing of that flight, and also uh, what time you leave your origin and what time you arrive um, at your destination. And, and so because we know how light influences the circadian system, we can model you know, what the lighting during the flight should be. And that's something that 
you know, we could potentially apply to flights all around the world, um, mm. but that unfortunately other airlines aren't doing. Um, mm. And really, we want to do this across all of Qantas's flights. Um, and so far, I think we've applied this to the new QF9 and QF10, which is between Perth and London. Yep. So that was a new flight that was introduced um, in 2018, I would say, in early 2018. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's fantastic to actually, you know, as you say, translate some of this work and put into practice what we already know. Mm, yeah, fantastic. All right. So we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but I'd, yeah, I'd love to know even more of some of the, the specifics of what sort of things are you actually monitoring in, okay, in the sure. research over these 19 to 20 hours? Okay, sure. Um, okay, so we are monitoring a whole bunch of things. Um, in terms of the passengers on these test flights, these 20-hour flights, uh, we've been getting passengers um, the week before they actually go on the flight and giving them a little actigraphy device. So these are devices that are similar to like a Fitbit and you wear it on uh, your wrist and it's basically a little watch that measures the movements of your arm and uses those movements um, and to try and estimate how phys- physically active you are and also when you're sleeping. Um, And these devices, unlike um, devices like Fitbit, they also measure how much light you are exposed to. um, And particularly after the flight, we're interested in how much light people get to see if um, it helps them adapt to the new time time zone. Um, We're also getting people to log when they eat um, so we can see how much of an effect the food timing has on adaptation to jet lag. And we also have a measure... um, called the psychomotor vigilance task, which is a test of attention and reaction time. Um, and it's that's probably the easiest way we can get at the circadian rhythm. So what uh, people have to do is we give them little iPads um, and they basically have to respond whenever um, something appears on the screen and they really have to pay attention uh, to do that and respond as quickly as they can. And it's an incredibly boring task, um, but it does get at whether you're paying attention and how fast mm. you react. Um, and that tells us where in your circadian rhythm you are um, at, at that time. So it's looking at performance when you're jet lagged. Um, what else are we monitoring? So we're getting people for a week uh, before their flight, uh, testing them during the flight and also for two weeks. Up afterwards, oh, so we're wow. also asking things like how jet lag, jet lag do they feel, uh, what types of symptoms they're experiencing, so changes in their sleep, uh, changes in their concentration and motivation, changes in things like hunger and how satisfied they feel after meals, and changes in um, bowel movements and bowel function and um, digestion. So lots of interesting things, um, you know, coming out of that in the sense that um, people don't realise how much the circadian rhythm is responsible for um, in terms of the physiology and we're really trying to capture all of that. Mm, wow, for two weeks afterwards as well. That's quite a while yeah. to be sort of yeah, monitoring. Well, I think because um, in, in terms of crossing time zones, we know that if there's a time difference of um, about an hour, it takes people a day to um, really accommodate that time difference so if people are crossing Mm. uh, many time zones then you need about two weeks to try and recover and adapt to the new time zone 
Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's it. Yeah, I, I wasn't realised that it was quite that long as well. So I'm sure, um, you know, our listeners will be going, oh, a bit of a sigh of relief going, oh, well, I don't, there is a reason why I'm not feeling fantastic, even though I've been home for a week and a half. Yeah, and that really depends on the person. Some people seem to adapt mm. really well and other people take a bit longer. Yeah. So one of the things we want to try and do is figure out why is it that people you know, some people are just fine and some people just take two weeks, if not longer, to be able to adjust to um, back to the local time. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Well, how about the specifics behind the nutrition that and the food that's being served on board? Okay, so the nutrition is um, actually even more complex, as you know, because you, you work in this area. Um, so we already talked about sort of the importance of light for the circadian rhythm, but as you mentioned, the timing of food and the content of food is also important. Um, so with the timing of the meals, we've designed them to be in line with the timing of the lighting on board. So you know the traditional gotcha. schedule is you get on a flight and maybe an hour or two hours in, you get served a meal. And then there's nothing in between. They switch the lights off and you go to sleep. And then an hour or two hours before you get off the plane, they serve you another meal. Mm. And that's totally disregarding what's happening in your body and what's happening at your origin and your destination. Mm. Um, So what we're trying to do is basically line up the meals with when um, the circadian modeling says we should try and be awake um, and also uh, when the lights are on in the cabin. And... um, equally at the other at the other end not serving meals when you're supposed to be sleeping on the plane yeah wow so you're looking at it from a um arrival time uh, kind of perspective in regards to the yeah, sort of timing it's a little bit more um complicated than that in the I'm sense sure. that we're not really <laughs> trying to say okay you're going to sydney so let's serve you food at sydney time yeah um so the what's happening with the um, lighting is that the lighting schedule is designed to try and transition you to what's the, what the time is at the destination. So it's a transitional sort of period during the flight and it's neither, uh, let's say, London time nor Sydney time. It's sort of somewhere in between. Gotcha. Um, and so the meals um, also line up with that. Uh, we have um, a Professor Margaret Ullman Farinelli and her team of dietitians working with the food services team at Qantas um, and they're trying to come up with a menu that uh, not only helps to shift the circadian system in its timing but also do things like um, improve uh, gastrointestinal um, sort of comfort and reduce mm. bloating and aid digestion. Um, if it's more in terms of the timing like a dinner meal then we try to have elements of food that help to promote sleep. So, for instance, having a dairy-based dessert um, with tryptophan in it, for instance, to try and promote sleep, not serving caffeine with that meal if we're wanting to turn the lights off and have everyone go to sleep within a few hours. Um, And then, of course, if it's a more breakfast-like meal, then we might want to serve caffeine to help people try and wake wake up. Yeah, yeah, more protein and so forth mm-hmm. to kind of get yeah. them going. Yeah, wow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just, oh, I'm just so excited to hear about this because it can be just such a game changer. Just, mm. you know, 20 or even 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even sort of thought, you know, to kind of cross our mind. Everyone, as you just said before, you know, we jump on the plane and they start serving us food straight away. and it's It's a process that we've kind of, 
got used to, I think, you know, even when I'm traveling with my husband, he doesn't he doesn't very often listen to my podcast so I think I'm safe to say this um but you know soon after you know we might be boarding a long-haul flight somewhere he's going so when are they going to serve the food it's like really (laughs) kind of thing um yeah and I think one of the tricky things about being on the flight is that there's not much else to do so you know like eating sort of becomes an activity and a way to spend time True, very, very true. Although the in-flight entertainment these days is pretty impressive, so you yeah. watch a few movies and and that's gone. But you're right; it, it does it, it kind of just breaks up the monotony of sort of sitting um, mm. in in that kind of one spot uh, as well. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And well, I, mean, I mean, we're also doing things like um, recommending to passengers to try and not eat during the biological night, but yeah. equally recognizing that they might get hungry because the flight is twenty hours long, and or you know the portion sizes may not be appropriate to them and so providing healthy snacks where you know they, they are hungry and do need a snack yeah, yeah yeah so they're looking at portion sizes as well um yes they are mm. um i i don't know the details around the portion sizes but they're yeah. definitely looking at um the provision of healthy snacks for the time where meals aren't being served but yep. when people so that where we give them the advice to say well try not to eat during this time but if you do get hungry, just have you yeah. know these snacks that are available. Yeah, yeah, as a, as a different option, and and I love mm. that they're sort of taking into consideration um, the gastrointestinal health because I know even just you know working with night shifters, uh, specifically night shifters, but I suppose also mm. those that do early shift. I mean, they are prone, unfortunately, to a lot of gastrointestinal discomfort for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, yeah, sort of eating a heavier meal during the night when. Uh, as you said, the circadian rhythm, our, our um, gastro our motility kind of naturally slows down during the night, so it's not kind mm-hmm. of expecting that food. So I love that they're really, yeah, really taking that into consideration as well. Yeah, I mean, nutrition is a really complex area. And I think it, even more broadly, this program is quite complex because mm. we are trying to draw on all these different areas of expertise. And so we need lots of people involved. And then yeah. we need to try and all communicate and get on board with what each other are doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, how about from a, um, a physical movement perspective, Sun? Because obviously, when we're sitting on board, we're literally sitting for so mm-hmm. long. What mm-hmm. what sort of things um, or, or um, research is sort of being involved with the yeah passengers sort of being encouraged to move at certain times of the of the flight? Yeah. So um, in terms of physical activity, we mm. have um, so on these test flights, uh, the twenty hours with test flights between Sydney and New York and Sydney and London. We've been trialing a series of both seated exercises um, and exercises ah. and stretches that you can do sort of out of your seat. Yep. Um, and really the aim of these are to, you know, enhance circulation, improve our state of mind on a long flight, and also act as a cue to the circadian system. So you might know that um, physical activity, um, and most recently was found to basically have sort of similar effects on our circadian system as light does, and we don't know if that um, effect is as big as the influence of light. So right now we're testing sort of um, exercises that are timed to be in line with the lighting of the cabin and, you know, recommending that people don't do exercises, obviously, when the cabin lights are off. Gotcha. To, mimic, to, to try and mimic sort of inactivity and sleep and rest um, during that cabin lights off period. 
Um, so we have uh, Associate Professor Corinne Kayo, who is an exercise scientist who developed these um, with her team. Um, and so what we've been doing with passengers is giving them a little uh, set of instructions that says, you know, these are the exercises you can do. Um, they're quite simple things like stretching, moving your arms, um, flexing your ankles if you're having to do a seated exercise and doing sort of repetitions of these, um, as well as doing things like uh, walking up and down the aisles and doing squats if you have some space. So really simple things to just try and get the circulation uh, moving and giving you that sense of um, activity uh, even when you're you know stuck again in on a flight for 20 hours. Mm, yeah, this is so good, Asan, because this sort of information can also really be um, transferred into, say, for it, another example of like a shift working environment or like a call, mm-hmm. call centre where people are just sitting down, you know, answering phones all day. So they kind of I was also... thinking it's quite helpful just to yeah. Office workers like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. but we're <laughs> we really concerned about the shift workers. And getting, um, you know, being less sedentary. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do on board with the passengers and saying, you know, every hour or so, you know, alternate your seated and your um, uh, out of seat exercises. Mm. Do some seated exercises one hour, um, get out of your seat um, and try to be moving around and not just sit for 20 hours. Mm. Yeah, but I, I suppose it, it yeah really even I guess applies even more um, for for example the night shifters or the early morning or whatever it, when when they're when they're facing with that massive sleep pressure that's kicked in as, as long mm. as well as a you know disrupted sleep rhythm at you know three o'clock in the morning where every ounce of it your being is telling you just to you know lie down on the floor and sleep but you can't <laughs> but you can't um, I'm just thinking that yeah those little exercises could easily be um yeah recommended as well to kind of help them um yeah as you said in that office environment as well so it yeah it's brilliant and I think that's a fantastic idea to try and translate all of this to um shift workers because I think I don't think there's been that much on exercise and shift workers and whether mm. just getting up and about for a walk helps um, in terms of your levels of alertness and energy because what we found on um, a couple of these test flights is that people actually say they feel invigorated after these quite gentle exercises so we were really surprised by that Um, and so I think well if we can learn from you know the jet lag setting and apply it to other areas that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I did stumble upon some research a little while ago um, where they looked at um, sleep-deprived women and mm-hmm. they got them to, I can't remember the exact specifics now, but they got them to, because they wanted to, yeah, see how alert they were and they got them to either have, you know, uh, 50 milligrams of coffee or doing 10 minutes of walking up and down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And, and they found that the those that actually did the stair walking were much more energised than those that had the coffee. Mm. So I thought, okay, that's fantastic because that's kind of a um, a win-win there for, you know, anybody that's wanting to kind of lose a bit of weight and reduce their stress from the caffeine. And, um, yeah, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like I should do more of um, the walking myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what people are doing, right, when they go mm. for their coffee breaks. It's getting the walking and the caffeine. Yeah. And they're probably having the benefits of the walking and thinking it's all about the caffeine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. All right. Well, that's um, so. We've talked a little bit the, the lighting and the food and um, and, and movement and so forth. So, from a sleep perspective, <laughs> what else? Most difficult one. Yeah. What else has <laughs> sort of been going on there? But yeah. 
Well, I think one of the key limitations on a flight is that you only get a certain amount of sleep quality mm. if you sleep sitting up, and that's if you can sleep at all. Yeah. Um, we know that sleep quality improves the closer you get to being able to lie in a flat. Yep. Yep. Um, but that, of course, needs to be balanced with whether Qantas and other airlines can actually fit in, you know, the certain number of reclining seats and still be able to make money from selling mm. flights. Um, so I guess we're really going back to old school methods here with the sleep. Um, first of all, making sure that the sleep is in line with the cabin lighting. Um, and so uh, the, the modelling is uh, of the circadian system really is trying to help that. So um, in terms of the lighting shifting sec- the circadian rhythm, we're also trying to shift sleep in line with that. Um, and depending on when the flight leaves um, and when the flight arrives, uh, that is either easier on a flight or less easy. So, um, for instance, the flight between New York and Sydney, um, the people being able to sleep on that flight is quite easy because they have a natural build-up of sleep pressure, yep. whereas on the other way around from, sorry, the other test flight that we've had between London and Sydney, the sleep period has been a bit more difficult. Um I guess in term, in general, we're trying to make sure that the cabin is also at a com- comfortable temperature for sleep and also that the changes in the temperature um, of that sort of uh, cabin environment are in line with the circadian rhythm, again, trying to facilitate sleep and also mimic that idea of a natural day and night. Mm-hmm. So when the lights are going down, the temperatures are also going down and having a cooler nighttime period for sleep. Gotcha. Yep. Fantastic. That's right. Um, is it travelling west is better than travelling east? Is that where that also that difference between coming from New York was better or was it more because of the time that the departure left? Uh, it's probably a bit of both, actually. Okay. Um, the travelling west um, being better, we think, is because of the different lengths of the circadian um, rhythm in most people. Um, so in most people, I think it's something like 75% of people have an innate circadian uh, rhythm or the length of their circadian rhythm is longer than 24 hours long and that makes it easier to extend the day and travel west. Um, whereas travelling east is harder because it means that you have to shorten your day and um we think that's likely to be uh, an easy option for maybe 25% of the population, but we're not sure. There's actually very little research on this. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, I was sort of wondering why, um, yeah, the logic behind it. Yep, fantastic. All right. So that's something we want to try and look at to see Mm. what makes people different and having a different uh, circadian period length. um, That's something we'll try and look at in future research. Mm. Yeah, actually, and I also read um, somewhere too that obviously though um, that the passengers and crew, I would imagine, too, have mm-hmm. you know been fitted with you know wearable kind of technology devices whilst this is all undergoing. What mm-hmm. what are they exactly? You mentioned the actigraphy um, device before they left, but what sort mm-hmm. of goes on on board? Um, uh, 
there's actually a completely separate team that is managing uh, the crew and the pilots. Okay. Um, and that's the yep. uh, alertness, um, mm. what do they call it, the CRC, mm-hmm. the the Research um, Centre for Alertness, Performance and Safety. And so researchers from, uh, I think it's Monash University, have been monitoring the pilots um, and looking at their levels of alertness. So they all do a similar task to what the passengers do, the psychomotor vigilance task to test their reaction time and attention. Um, but they're also having um, their uh, brainwaves monitored through a wearable device. Right. Okay. And how about the, the passengers as well? Um, so the passengers uh, don't have uh, a wearable device in terms of um, putting electrodes on okay. their to see yep. what their sleep and their brainwaves are like, yeah. So, um, and that's because we did some pilot research back in 2018 um, where we just found that it was really, really hard to try and capture sleep in that flight environment. Um, and for these passengers who've been on the most uh, recent lot of test flights, they actually have a chance to lie down because they're all flying business. So, mm. um, and so they're actually sleeping pretty well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And we know that when you've got things stuck to your head, it's <laughs> definitely makes it a little yeah, bit more challenging. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. All right. So what have some of the results been so far, um, Sun? Has there been anything like uh, totally surprised you or um, or you kind of, um, I guess the results were pretty well much what you were sort of expecting? Yeah, I'm a bit well, intrigued. Well, we don't actually have the results from the test flights yet. Um, oh, it's still okay. early days. Okay. Because... There's only been two test flights and we've only been able to monitor six passengers on each of those flights. Um, so we don't have quite enough data to sort of analyse and draw a solid conclusion. Okay. And we do actually have another test flight coming up next week. Um, so it'll be interesting to collect more data and um, see what that says. Um, we know particularly when it comes to jet lag and circadian rhythms, people are quite different and that's why we need sort of the more numbers to try and figure mm. out what's going on. Um, the other issue is, of course, um, these te- test flights have been in completely different um, directions, so they're not quite sort of directly comparable, if that makes sense. Mm. So we do need some sort of control passages where we don't give them anything and they just go on the flights um, and you know, see what happens in them and see whether uh, jet lag is improved in the cabin and to their meals and um, to the physical activity that they've been recommended Mm. Um, I guess in terms of sort of the bigger Charles Perkins Centre and Qantas Partnership Project, that has been going for almost two years now. And so we've done lots of other studies looking at um, how much research uh, there has been out there and what we found is basically not a lot and very few studies of um, jet lag in real passengers and trying to fix jet lag in people who are actually travelling as opposed to um, looking at circadian disruption um, as a form of... um, as a model for jet lag in the laboratory. So um, it will be interesting to see uh, whether we can sort of add to that and actually translate some of that knowledge um, using um, these real-life sort of studies. Um, We've done lots of um, sort of comprehensive literature reviews to try and figure out, you know, how to design the menus, how to design cabin schedules for these programs um so it'd be interesting for instance to see whether the food timing or the food content helps people overcome jet lag Mm. Mm. um yeah so there's been lots of sort of 
background work, I guess, um, going on. Um, so, so we're trying to establish a survey measure of jet lag so we don't have to collect things like blood or urine samples from passengers and then transport them overseas and transport them back. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a logistical nightmare, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, what we're seeing so far is that people are reporting sort of their subjective jet lag yeah. and that's sort of roughly in line with what we expect. So the more time zones you cross, the worse your jet lag is. Mm. And we're trying to extend this survey-based research more broadly so that we can look at why, as I mentioned, people experience different level, levels of jet lag. So is it um, their health status? Does that have anything to do with it? Is it about how tall these passengers are? Um, you know, And thinking about jet lag as not just the circadian disruption but also an element of travel fatigue um, are there age and gender mm. differences? Um, does chronotype or preferred timing of activity have any to do, anything to do with how severe their jet lag is? Uh, we've also asked passengers what they actually do for jet lag. So it's something surprisingly that no one has asked before. Mm. Um, and that's so that we understand what the public's level of knowledge is um, around jet lag and their motivation um, in, in actually acting and trying to mitigate their jet lag. Um, so for us, if we're recommending that people do stretches and exercises, it's it's not a very helpful recommendation if everyone is already doing stretches and exercises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what we're finding is that um, in some of this survey-based research, we've had about 460 passengers participate. Um, and what we're finding is that 80 to 90% of passengers are trying to do something. Okay, so this could be eating healthily or trying to sleep or nap, um, trying to get sunlight after the flight, drinking alcohol, not drinking alcohol, drinking caffeine or, or um, coffee and tea and not and avoiding caffeine. Um, and so everyone is very motivated to try and do something mm-hmm. around jet lag, but they're not necessarily doing the right things. So I guess a couple of standout statistics um, that have come out from that is that we found that just under 50% of people are actually getting out in the sun or outdoors in the days after their flight. Oh, how much percentage, sorry? Uh, just under 50%. I think it was something like... Yeah, was wow. Yeah. Like, well, what about everyone else? We want everyone to be going outdoors yeah. and getting exposed to sunlight so that they're adapting to the local time yeah. when they arrive. Exactly. Um, so how do we yeah. get that extra 50%? Mm, yeah, get them. But then again, I suppose that comes down to what are their commitments even before, you know, before you're about to fly, you know, if they've got quite mm-hmm. a heavy schedule and then even when they land, yeah, maybe they've within a few hours or so, they've got, um, you know, booked to speak at some event or, or something. So I suppose you've got yeah, those res- constraints, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. So it's about thinking about, well, how do we tell people that doing this is important yeah. so that people yes. can work it yeah. into their schedule. Yeah. Um, and then there are sort of elements like uh, a, something like a quarter of the people that we surveyed were actively drinking alcohol to try and cope during the flight. Mm. And you're like, well, you know, that's not necessarily <laughs> the best way if you want to sleep yeah. well on the flight. Mm. But it's, of course, fully understandable because, you know, you want to get into that state of being relaxed. Mm. So. Yeah, a lot of interesting findings coming out of this um, that we still need to sort of try and understand a bit more and try and, I guess, communicate to people, you know, these are the recommended strategies if you want to reduce your jet lag. Um, These are the things you might want to do if you want to um, help promote your sleep. um, And these are the things that you might want to avoid. 
And I think some of the, uh, I guess, uh, complexities around this is, of course, it all depends on the timing. So much of the circadian work is around the timing. So mm. caffeine might be totally appropriate if you are trying to wake yourself up, but it's totally inappropriate at the, you know, if your body clock is supposed to be going to sleep. So it, it's really hard to say whether um, at this point in time, at least, whether people are doing the right things. Mm, it really, I guess, just reinforces that timing is everything, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. It really Definitely. is, yeah. But not something that we kind of, you know, have sort of been talking about much and um, I think it's, it's just so, I'm just so excited that this is sort of research is going on because it, just like the sleep awareness study, I mean, it's just shining, pardon the pun, shining light on such an important area of, of our health because, Ooh, as you said before, we talk, about, we talk about, we talk about, we talk about, you know, um, nutrition and exercise all the time. But yeah, we've got the sleep and we've got the circadian rhythms and that the timing is absolutely everything. And I think, um, I mean, I, when I do my talks um, that I will run in workplaces, I basically let people know that you're trying to put it into simple kind of ways for people to understand that you are a walk clock like Ooh. and actually more than one clock you have multiple clocks throughout you and it, it just it, it's just such a play a big role in our health and well-being so um yeah fantastic fantastic actually just before you go when you were talking about the alcohol i do have to ask then so did they serve alcohol on these flights um on the test flight yeah uh, i think they had uh, appropriately timed alcohol <laughs> appropriately <laughs> they had a um, pre-boarding uh, drink as sort of like <sighs> a celebratory drink oh, of course um, but yeah. they avoided serving people alcohol yeah um, as part of the dinner meal and obviously not at, at the breakfast meal <laughs> yeah yeah well that's 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 kind of good that's kind of good because yeah we know that the impacts are on the the REM cycle um, of our of our sleep so um, yeah <laughs> brilliant 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 well look this has just been such a great conversation son I'm so glad that I got to see you um, at that event down in Sydney and it was uh, there were it was just such an amazing amount of, of speakers there and, and just really opened my eyes that just how much uh, research is going on um, you know behind the scenes which uh, as I keep saying I get really excited about because it means <laughs> that I can then translate it uh, what you guys are finding out with the results and hopefully get it out to the people that need to kind of know it the most and obviously a lot of um, what you what you're doing with this uh this particular research with Project Sunrise and also the health and well-being in the air, a lot of it can also be pl- applied into other areas, not just those that fly, um, but obviously other areas of the shift working population because, as I alluded to right at the beginning, we often walk around like shift workers are kind of like time travellers. We walk around feeling jet-lagged half the time. So mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of the results that come out will definitely be able to be um, translated across um, to a lot of different other areas of public health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that would be our aim to try and see if we can, um, you know, find results that can apply to other areas as well and maybe even go back to the basic researchers and say, oh, we don't understand why something seems to work, but... Um, you know it seems to be working and Mm. uh, go and find out more about why it is that this works Mm, because we need more of that (laughs) yeah (laughs) we definitely need more of that yeah well yeah so thank you um son for joining me today it's been an absolute um absolute pleasure having you on the show um and i'm really excited to to sort of hear more about um you know the the research moving forward and hearing the research the results that come back um, from all of the hard work that you're doing Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
Um, it's it's been heaps of fun, and hopefully, um, I'm sure you'll hear lots of media <laughs> coming out of yeah. from Qantas about this. And I think that's um, you know a really great opportunity to again raise public awareness mm. of how jet lag actually works and the importance of circadian rhythms and sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah, I take my hat off to Qantas as being the the one the airline that's really um, you know being the leader of the pack um, in this research too. So wonderful. All right. Well, that's Thank you it. Very much. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's it um, for another edition of the Health Issue Worker Podcast. Thank you so very much for joining us today. If you found this episode helpful, please feel free to share it with other shift workers who you think may benefit, as this will help me to spread the Health Issue Worker message to shift workers and organisations all around the world. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Until next time, may you continue to be as healthy as you possibly can be despite working 24-7. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.